writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. The writing world is full of lies, says Lisa Cron, story coach and author of Wired for Story and Story Genius. One of the biggest lies is that beautiful writing and a well-structured plot are the essence of good writing, but they're not. According to Lisa, beautiful writing is merely the vehicle that conveys the story, and the plot by itself is merely a bunch of external things that happen. So what's the missing component? In today's interview, Lisa Cron will tell you. She provides a fresh perspective on how to approach storytelling so that your reader craves your writing from beginning to end. Welcome, Lisa, to our podcast. We're so excited to have you on this podcast and for you to help our writers understand storytelling, fiction writing, just all of the stuff that makes you so good at what you do. We're really excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So before we kind of dive into the topic, can you just tell us about your history in storytelling and where you are today and what has led to you being where you are today? Because you have a really diverse background. Yeah, I mean, I've loved story ever since I was a kid. I, I've spent more time working with writers and storytellers than, frankly, for more decades than I want to admit to being alive. I started in publishing. I've worked in television. I've worked reading books to film for decades and decades and decades. And what brought me to where I am was when I first started reading manuscripts, and I was you know, fresh out of college, I realized really pretty quickly that what I'd been taught mattered. What I'd been taught pulls readers in was completely wrong, could not have been more wrong. And for a long, it took me a long time to get there, right? It, it, part of it was, especially when I got to the place where I was, I was working as a literary agent and I was, again, reading books to film for the studios. And I couldn't just say, yeah, well, let's pass on this or, yeah, this is a good idea. I had to tell them why. I had to really dive in and say, okay, why does this work and why doesn't this work? And that's where I really started to realize that, that you know, what we were taught pulled us in, what we were taught was good writing, or even that it's about writing itself was just completely wrong. And at that point, I thought, well, this is sort of, I think this, or it's my theory. And luckily for me at that time, neuroscience was just burgeoning. <laughs> and I'm really interested in neuroscience because neuroscience, as with fiction, it lets us know what makes other people tick. And what I realized at that point is what I thought was my theory turned out to be literally biological fact. <laughs> what pulls us into a story, what we're looking for, that in fact, we are wired for story. It's built into the architecture of our brains. It's how we make sense of everything. And in fact, you know, we're talking here about fiction and writing fiction, but story, story, regardless the format, regardless the, the need, regardless the, the function, it is, it is always the exact same thing. Now what I do 
I've written three books, as you know, on, on story. And I work one-on-one with novelists and screenwriters and, and, and also people out in the business world trying to frame the story that they want to tell. And most of the people, everyone who comes in has gone through that route of what the, you know, what the writing world tells them to do and realizes it just really, really doesn't work. And what breaks my heart is that really often these are people with incredible talent. I was reading one woman's work today. We've worked together, I guess, for about six months. And if you could have seen what she came in with and what she's capable of doing and what she's done based on the work that we've done, you wouldn't believe that the same person wrote the two things. It's just the writing world is wrong. It is just really 180 degrees wrong. So what, for our listeners, has the writing world gotten wrong? If you were to summarize that, what would that be? The two things that the writing world has gotten wrong, what pulls a reader in is quote unquote beautiful writing and a rip roaring plot. And if you write well, and you come up with some plot, you have a story and that's going to pull people in. And that literally could not be less true. I mean, the writing world will often say back in the day, pre-COVID, when we all went to writing conferences and I used to go all the time to speak. And sometimes you'd, you'd come to that table where they give you your badge and they'd have this fun question, right? They'd go, are you a pantser or are you a plotter, right? And they'd give you a badge, pantser, plotter. And I say, a pox on both your houses. Neither one work. The worst way of writing is to quote unquote pants, which means to just start writing. I've got some vague idea. I'm going to write forward and find out what happens. It never works. You will write yourself off a cliff. And plotting is literally just as bad because it starts on page one and it goes forward. And then it's about a bunch of things that happen, which is what most manuscripts are. I mean, sadly, I can't tell you how many manuscripts I've read where if you asked me, what's it about? I'd go, it's about 300 pages. I have no idea. It's just a bunch of things that happen. And that's what happens when people plot. They go, this has to happen, that has to happen, that has to happen. Then they drop characters in. And now these characters have to do the things that the plot needs, whether there is any psychological or emotional veracity in what they're doing or not. And it literally just doesn't work. Neither pantsing nor plotting works. Again, a pot's on both their houses. Let's go back to that idea that we, we believe that beautiful writing is one key component and plotting is the other. But let's focus on the beautiful writing. What's, what's wrong with that ideology? Why doesn't focusing on beautiful writing work? And then also, if you could dig a little bit more into why the plotting just doesn't simply work, having a great plot. Because here's the thing about a story. All stories begin and medius res, which means in the middle of the thing, which means page one of the novel is the first page of the second half of the story. What writing actually is, it's not about how well you write or grammar, God forbid, or any of that. Writing is translation. It is being able to dive inside of your protagonist, all your characters really, and really tell us how they are internally reacting to what's happening on the page. And the only way you know that is to create the first half of the story, which starts decades often, I mean, if you're, if you're writing a YA, not decades, if you're writing a middle grade, definitely not decades. If you're writing a, a novel of somebody who's 20 or, or older, yeah, decades before and writing in a story specific way up until where the story actually starts. Because here's the thing. Story is about how what happens, that's the plot, affects someone, that's your protagonist, in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal. That is that story problem, the agenda that they walk onto the page with already fully fully developed. 
and how going through that, that change, because all stories about change, internal change, how, how going through that changes how they see something in the world. And that internal change is what then allows them either to solve the problem or see it as something very different than what they thought it was. And that, my friends, is what your story is about. In other words, the story is not about the plot. The story is about how the plot affects the protagonist internally, how the protagonist changes internally, how something seminal in their belief system has to shift in order for them to solve that problem. And if you're thinking, well, what do you mean they got to change? They're just there on page one. Aha. Uh-huh. Everything starts before. All characters, starting with your protagonist, enter the story with two things already fully formed, something that they want and they've wanted for a long time, and what I like to call a misbelief, something that holds them back, something that makes them think like this is actually helping them get that thing they want, and those things have ricocheted through that person's life, story specifically. You can't just know it in your head or think about it or write it out in God forbid, summary form, because you're not really summarizing anything. It's general, and the story is always in the specific. But diving in and creating those scenes as that misbelief guides their life, as it grows, as it escalates, as it complicates. So when they step onto page one, they've already got, before they have any idea, the dark and stormy night that's going to await them on page one, they've already got a fully formed agenda. They've got something they want that they walk onto page one with. And they've got a misbelief something that's holding them back and keeping them from getting it. And every scene, scene by scene by scene by scene in the plot forces them to to go after what they want. But in order to do it, they've got to confront the misbelief. And that's what I like to call your novel's third rail. It's where all the meaning comes from. It's where all the juice comes from. It's where the urgency comes from. Without the first half, you have a bunch of things that happen. And this brings us, if you don't mind my saying, to the lie. Here is the biggest lie, in my opinion, that the writing world tells you. And that is, use backstory sparingly, and then only when the reader needs to know something. First of all, you never put anything in because the reader needs to know, and not that they don't. You don't even think about the reader. You put it in because that is what the protagonist is struggling with in the moment on the page as they're trying to figure out what to do. Backstory is the most seminal layer of story. All story logic comes from backstory. Backstory meaning the subjective internal narrative that your protagonist is using to make sense of things as she goes through the rough and tumble plot, again, cause and effect that you are going to create. Again, keeping in mind that story is about one single problem that grows, escalates, and complicates from beginning to end. And in every scene, internally, they're struggling with what to do. And in every scene, they make a decision, they have a small aha moment that then has a consequence and plays forward. That's what story is. That's what we come for, to be hooked into that internal evolving narrative. When you're lost in a story, you've got that Vulcan mind meld with the protagonist. When you're lost in a story, they've done functional MRI studies that show when you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you're doing what the protagonist is doing. It's biological. You really are there. But that means we have to be inside the protagonist's head. That means we have to really know what they're thinking because that's where meaning comes from. That's where emotion comes from. People in college, they'd go in literature as in life. And it really is the other way around. In life as in literature, because stories are about people and the way that we make sense of things, you, me, and everybody else, the meaning we read into things comes from one place and one place only. And that's what our past experiences taught us that those things mean. I have a question about... The internal processing that the 
that the character is 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 coming to terms with. I would imagine that a lot of inexperienced writers then say, "Oh, I got to do a lot of internal thinking of with my character," and that's a real danger, right? I mean, because that's not interesting. Nothing is happening. So, what? How can you encourage our readers to think differently? Just because they're internally struggling with an idea and these misbeliefs, it doesn't mean you do these long interior monologues. Well, here's the thing. I mean, all of it is interior, like literally, but it's not a monologue. Imagine if you're in a tough decision. Again, character needs to make a tough choice in every scene and you're trying to figure out what the right thing to do. It's this versus that, the way that we all do it. That is where story lives and breathes. What I say to people is take out a highlighter. I was working with a writer who said, I want to see what you're talking about, this internality, the way the character's making sense of things. And that's where backstory comes in because you know we use the past to make sense of the moment and to try to figure out what to do. And she was reading at the time, she was reading Sharp Objects, which is Gillian Flynn who wrote Gone Girl, it's her first book. And she said to me, I'm halfway through that book and I've highlighted 60, that's 6-0% of the book. 60% of the book's backstory. That is what pulls us in. And I think that the problem that writers have is that when it pulls us in, we don't realize that's what's doing it. We don't even realize that's there because literally you have left reality behind. You are in the world of the story. You're in the mind of the protagonist. That is where it lives and breathes. But it's not a monologue where they're musing on something. It's where they're trying to figure out what the hell to do in the moment. That's where story lives and breathes. That's what's pulling us in. Take a while just to see that in what you're reading, and you'll see what I mean. That's where all story logic comes from. Story logic doesn't come from externally what's happening. It comes from internally what's happening. That's what we come to story for. We don't come to story for what someone says. We come to story for what they're really thinking when they say it. What do they really mean? Is there any such thing as a weak misbelief? Like, say you're working with a writer and you say, this misbelief just isn't very convincing or it's weak and it's not going to like sustain the character's interest maybe throughout the entire, the entire novel. Or what would you say? Is there such a thing as a weak misbelief? Well, here's what I would say, which is, you don't get to just go, this is the misbelief and now I'm writing forward. It's what I said before. You have to write what I call the origin scene, which is the moment that that misbelief came into being. The moment that that character, and it always happens in childhood, somewhere between say the age of of six, and I I think six or seven, you don't want to just go earlier, and maybe 13. Because we all have them. Every single one of us has them. I've worked with so many writers who've said, I was looking for my protagonist misbelief. And I found my own. So it's going back and writing it. You go into the scene wanting something with a belief, and then something happens. Again, character has to have skin in the game. As I'm fond of saying, there must be blood, meaning they've got to be really feeling something. Something matters to them. There's something at stake. And now they find out that what they believed, in fact, wasn't true. And a misbelief is a misbelief, again, about human nature. It's not something logical, like, I thought she was my mother, and it turns out she's my sister, you know, or I thought the world was was flat. And I you know, hope you're sitting down because guess what? It's actually round. It's not factual. It's a misbelief about how we treat each other. It's a misbelief basically about what we need to do in order to get our needs met. When we're kids, we're trying to figure out how the world works. What do I need to do to get my needs met? Not to sound you know, completely transactional, but we're wired to take those beliefs in and the things that we learn as kids, we're wired to take it in as this is a permanent way the world is. We encode it as permanent, not just this is my parents' view of the world, or this is my religion's view of the world, or this is my country's view of the world, or my neighborhood's view of the world. It's this is what the world is. 
And anybody who doesn't believe it, there's something wrong with them. That is what, what we come into believe. That's why misbeliefs, once they take hold, tend to skew our, the way that we interpret almost everything. So a weak misbelief is a misbelief that you haven't tracked down boots on the ground. And that origin scene you write with as much detail and often with writers who haven't thought this way, way more story-specific detail internally than they've ever written before. That's what I was going to ask you about is, is that, that backstory. You're not going to use it all as far as the details. You're only going to re- reveal the details that are important to moving the story forward to revealing how the main character is dealing with this misbelief. But how, how much backstory do you encourage your writers to, to write? And how do you encourage them to do that? What, what, what is good backstory writing? Here's how you don't do it. Do, you know, a character bio from birth until the story starts. And then they'll give you all those long lists. Like, you know, where were they born? What's their religion? When did they have their first kiss? When, where do they go to school? What's their favorite color? What's their favorite? Who cares? None of that matters. You're not looking for anything general or generic. What you're looking for is since writers tend to have some idea of what the story they want to write is, you know, who this person is and what that difficult problem that they're going to be facing on page one. Now you got to go back and create it. So you go, what's that misbelief? And then based on what you want to write, where are those seminal scenes as it's growing and escalating and complicating? You're not writing something that goes, like I said, from birth or from even inception of misbelief up until the beginning. You're looking for those turning point moments. You're looking for the moments when something happened that deepened that misbelief. You're looking for where that thing that they wanted caused them to take a wrong turn. And again, those things, and sometimes they actually, yeah, in fact, are in the story. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, the plot auto-populates from this. Because I mean, think about your own life. Think about today and now the next year that's going to happen. You have all sorts of balls in play, right? All sorts of things you want to have happen, things you're worried about. They're very specific. Did any of them, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you knew none of that, would any of that be there? Of course not. Where did all that come from? Your past. The meaning that you're reading into what's happening, where did that come from? Your story-specific past. We all have it. In a story, you've got to figure out what that's going to be for that character. And then you write all of that out in scene form. And the way it comes in flashbacks, and often it is completely that, characters struggling with what to do, just like you or me. We're struggling with what to do. And we think, wait, but the last time that happened, and then we go back and we go into that. Here's what skill as a writer actually is. So if you're trying to figure out what to do and you go, yeah, the last time that happened, that was back in high school when I went to the prom. Now you're, you're not going to sit down and narrate to yourself what happened at the prom then, right? Because we don't think in language. You kind of know it, you feel it, you get a picture, you go, oh yeah, there's that. And then you go forward. Obviously in a novel, you can't do that. The art of writing is to take what's inchoate on that level and put it into language and let us know what they're thinking. And, and sometimes an entire chapter can be a flashback because the character's thinking about, what should I do? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, there was the time. And then we go into a full flashback that you might have written as one of these scenes. And then when they come out of the flashback, now they've got a new insight as to either how to solve the problem, another reason that that people go into flashbacks, and we have this in real life a lot too, is when you realize you've completely misread a situation. You know, the example I like to give is, imagine you've been in a relationship and it's been great for a year and you just think you're madly in love. 
and you have such good memories of that year. And then you find out that person's been cheating on you the whole time. They had another family, you know, in another state. Suddenly you look back and now you have a very different feeling for all of those memories. Suddenly you're seeing things that you missed. Think about the way the world has changed. And now you come out with definitely new conclusions you've drawn that play forward. A big mistake that writers can make is when people say there has to be action. I've had this, this just happened the other day. Someone was writing a scene and now all of a sudden the person gets up and they walk over to the refrigerator and they get some milk and then they put ice in it and now they're chewing the ice. It's like, why are they doing that? Well, we had to have action. You don't have to have any action on that level at all. Often they go, well, character can't just sit there and be thinking. Of course they can. If there's a flashback and that's what they're thinking, there's action in the flashback, right? I mean, if that thing that might've happened at the prom or whatever, there's action in that. The, the reader doesn't go, oh, wait a minute, that was action in the past. There's no action right now, so I don't really care. And they understand why the character's thinking about it because they understand you know, the problem the character's having in the moment. Most of the story is backstory. Without backstory, you have no story. Backstory is where all story logic comes from. Backstories where desire comes from, backstories where meaning comes from. So you keep hitting this point with backstory. And how do you write or like how do you develop a character who is complex through this backstory? How do you take a character from being flat and one-dimensional to something to someone who is likable but also flawed? Somebody we can relate to, but also makes bad decisions. Let's first tackle that notion of likable, which is, again, one of the biggest mistakes writers make, because they assume likable means would never do anything in polite society that would make anybody feel even slightly uncomfortable. Now, the irony is, is people who are like that are not even likable. We don't like people like that. When somebody seems so perfect on that level, we think, oh my God, that is either that is the shallowest, most saccharine person I ever met, or I wonder what they're doing in the basement. <laughs> because clearly, <laughs> no, don't like those people. What likable actually means, and I've heard, I've heard, I've heard once somebody who was also teaching you say it this way, and I thought that doesn't tell us anything. She'd go, in order for somebody to be likable, they have to be relatable. We have to be able to relate to them. Now that's true, but how does that help a writer? What does that mean? In order to be likable, a character has to be vulnerable. That is what makes us likable because guess what? All of us are vulnerable. That's what we come to story for. I see what you're saying. What are you really thinking? What is it costing you to say that? That is what makes a character likable. Not a character can do horrific things on the top or things that are so deeply misplaced. But if we understand, again, internally, the why they're doing it and that they're vulnerable, we are going to be right there with them. Because guess what? Like in real life, all those things that you do that you don't want anybody else to know, that you'd be mortified if they know, guess what? We all do that. We're all doing those things, every single one of us. And we don't want other people to know. We learn very early in life, don't allow other people to see your vulnerabilities. Story is about, you get that perfect character on the outside. Not only aren't we going to like her, she's boring. Who the hell cares? The complexity is in this internal struggle. Anyway, the story is internal. I can't say it strongly enough. It's not about what happens in the plot. It's about how the plot affects the protagonist. And the only way to do that and to answer your question is to come up with a complex character, is to write these scenes. So we are inside her head 
as she's struggling. And we understand the why behind it. Without it, you've just got a what. And nobody cares about a what. We care about the what only if we've got the why and the how, which is why you have to write these things out in scene form. The story's in the specifics, only in the specifics. How did it happen? How is she making sense of it? So what's going on? That's why, I mean, to get when people talk about drama, another big mistake that the writing world suggests is throw something dramatic in, as if there is a big external grab bag of objectively dramatic, which is an oxymoron. If it's objective, it can't be dramatic. Dramatic things that you could throw at your protagonist to see what they're going to do. Don't ever do that, ever. It's not outside in. Story's not top down. It's bottom up. Story is that one problem that grows, escalates, and complicates. And that means whatever that is grows and escalates and complicates organically as you're going forward, not because suddenly something external happens to see what the protagonist would do or to make it more quote unquote dramatic. It doesn't work that way. Drama could be, it could be birth, death, fall of the Roman Empire, bombs bursting in air, and it can be shockingly boring because it only matters if it's affecting somebody based on what they want for their reasons. And they've got whatever that is for them is at stake. And we understand what that's going to be. We get the actual internal consequence it's going to have on them. Only way to get there is to create this other stuff first. As I'm fond of saying two things really quickly, story structure is the byproduct of a story well told. And in terms of polishing and thinking about grammar or whatever, I don't think you ever really have to worry about that. The story polishes the prose, not the other way around. Writers often make that mistake. They think it's about writing. They start polishing something where there's no real story there. I mean, as I'm fond of saying, it's like, it's like frosting a cake you haven't baked yet. It doesn't do you any good. The story is what matters. And the story is internal. And the story is about an internal change within your protagonist, really within, within all your characters. So you talk about it's not helpful to think in terms of theme right away, at least, and instead oh. ask, so what's my point? What's the difference between the two? Because I do think that, for instance, we're working with some authors who do have like this, this comment that they want to make on society. And so that becomes like the theme and it becomes really, really overwrought and just not interesting. And so I don't know if you have some ideas for, for how to think about theme differently. What you're, what you're talking about there is somebody who, who, again, theme, they want to make a point and they're doing it top down. They're being, I'm sure they're being didactic, right? I'm going to teach you never works. The minute the reader feels, because at that moment, the reader sees the writer. Anytime the reader sees a writer, they're going to bail. Real life, when someone comes up to you and starts telling you what to do, you immediately shut them out. No one wants to be told what to do. Full stop ever. Stories are Trojan horses because if you put it in a change that your protagonist is going to have to make, and then we've got that Vulcan mind meld, the way we see the world changes as well, 100%. But the minute we see you telling us what to do, we've gone, we've bailed. But anyway, so think, think about if you think about the word theme and you got, say, that same 100 writers in, the, in a room and said, define theme, you'd get 100 different answers and you'd make them sweat because what the hell is theme? It's generic. It's conceptual. Here's the thing. The conceptual, the abstract, the general do not 
exist. We made them up. They have no legs. They can't go forward. They're unspecific and they don't get us anywhere. Point is what you're talking about. And it goes to sort of, and I'm sure what those people who you're talking about, what they really want to do, they're just coming at it wrong, which is what is that change you want to see in the world? What point are you making about human nature? Because that's how, again, we said before, stories are about how the plot affects the protagonist and about how they, scene by scene by scene by scene, their misbelief is challenged. And that makes it sound much simpler and and more binary because nothing's binary that, that I mean, because by that time it's been absorbed into how they see the world and what they've done. But by the end, when they have that aha moment toward the end, that is the aha moment where their misbelief Meet, you know, meets the dust. They realize, oh my God, that thing I thought was helping me has actually been holding me back. And now I see the world differently. My belief system has shifted. And now I know how to solve the problem. Or I realize it wasn't really a problem to begin with. That moment is when your story makes its point because it's earned, because it's been earned from beginning to end. So yeah, I mean, I mean, point is, is at the end of the misbelief and point is what you're writing toward. You understand the point. You understand what that aha moment is going to be. You understand what your protagonist, and really all characters have this, but you understand what your protagonist needs to learn, what it is that this scene by scene by scene problem that they're going to be in. Again, stories, one problem that grows, escalates and complicates, not a bunch of problems, just one. And how their misbelief is going to have to bite the dust in order for them to solve it. It's, it's, it's as complex and as simple as that. And you can start seeing it in what you're watching. And what pulls us forward is wanting to know what that's going to be. How is it going to resolve? What's going to happen? That's where the urgency comes in. It's internal urgency, not is the bomb going to actually fall. Do you do any work with memoirs? Because it seems like the same, it's the always- same approach would work with memoirs. I mean, here's like what I said in the beginning, story is story. This works if you're trying to convince your kid not to text and drive. This works if you're writing a memoir. It's first for, I work with a lot of nonfiction writers and journalists. Story is story, regardless the framework, regardless the context, regardless the goal. I'm really intrigued because we do work with nonfiction authors and we're always trying to encourage them to use story to illustrate a point, but often those stories are so flat. So I'm wondering, based on all of this that you've been discussing today, how can nonfiction writers take those principles and apply them to a a shorter story that they're using to apply a principle? Do you have any tips for that? One of the things that is the hardest, I think, and this goes to people who are using story also in in business, I like to work with nonprofits and people fundraising, is that you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. Story is about how somebody learned something, not about how they did something. We don't care how they did something on the surface, especially if it's some good thing or whatever. We care about this exact same internal struggle. It is exactly the same. What did they go in believing that was wrong? What needed to get overturned? How did they learn it vis-a-vis what's happening? If that internal part is not there, we don't care. It's just a bunch of things that happen. And we don't care. And if in memoir, you have to be really careful because you have to make the reader empathize with you. We have to feel there are three things that happen when we get pulled into a story. It's a chemical cocktail. And this is true. This comes from the business world that has figured this out. Paul Zak is somebody who writes a lot about this. So like, what pulls us in? What kind of story makes us donate money, right? If there's a cause and 
And it's a chemical cocktail. And the chemical cocktail, three things that have to immediately surge in, in, you know, in unison, in tandem. First is dopamine. Dopamine misunderstood. People think of it as a pleasure hormone. It's not. It's curiosity. Dopamine is huh. curiosity. You want to go forward because you might get something pleasurable. So the first is dopamine. The next is cortisol, which is stress. And the third and the one that often goes missing is oxytocin, which is the empathy hormone. And what gets dopamine right there in the very beginning is something's happening, something surprising. That's what gets our attention, right? Uh Uh-oh, something happened over there. Why do we look when something unexpected happens? Because we're trying to figure out if we're safe or not. We're trying to figure out why. This is why you want, when you've got a character and something unexpected happens, you want them to try to figure out why. You don't want them to go, oh God, my significant other promised they'd be home by five o'clock and they're not. I wonder what happened. And then they go forward to do what they're doing. Don't ever do that. What you want to do is what you and I would do. If your significant other said, I know we need to talk about that important thing. I'll be home by five o'clock. And then they're not. And then it's five after five and it's 10 after five. You don't go, gee, I wonder what happened and keep doing what you're doing. You think, oh my God, what happened? Were they mad at me? Wait, that thing they said this morning, maybe they were mad. Let me go, let me go see if their clothes are still in the closet. Wait a minute. There was that woman down the street. who was, there's something going on there and that dog. And Oh my God, they asked me to take the car in and get the brakes fixed because that squeak and I forgot. And could there be an at? And wasn't that a spaceship this morning? In other words, you'd go through all the things trying to figure out why they might not be there to figure out what you need to worry about. Now, a book on the page, all of those things I just said could be wrong. But think about the insight that you get into the character there. Think about the backstory, the significant backstory that you get. Think about the character might go, oh, yeah, it's none of those. But you, the reader, might be going, no, 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 it was number three. It's definitely number three. Always got to go into what someone's thinking and how they're making sense of what's going on. That is how we make sense of everything. And that is how you need to get that onto the page. Then cortisol, which means something important is at stake, right? There's a risk. Uh-oh, something happened and this bad thing or could happen to this person. But those two things are not enough. And then the third thing, and the one that often goes missing, is the oxytocin. And that means we have to empathize with the character. And that's where the vulnerability comes in. They have to be vulnerable, not just physically vulnerable, like, you know, the wave is going to get them, or there's somebody out there with a gun, or or the spaceship is going to suck them up. We have to understand the why behind what's happening. Why is that really going to be a bad thing for them? Not in general but specifically given who they are. So the example I like to give is from, it's a YA and it's called Simon versus the Homeo Sapiens Agenda, which is a great book. They made a movie out of it called Loving Simon. And the first two lines or the first line is something like, it's a weirdly subtle conversation. I almost don't realize I'm being blackmailed. (laughs) And now what has happened is Simon is, I think he's 16. He's a protagonist. And what's happened is he's, Simon is gay, but his friends don't know it yet. Now he's not worried that they're going to know it and like that his parents would beat him up or he'd get ostracized or anything. He's just, I've lived my life. I've got my set of friends who I really like and go to college soon. And then I can reinvent myself. It's easier, right? Change is hard, even good change. It's easier to stay the way I am. But what's happened is he's met this boy on a school forum and they, they haven't given each other even their real names but he's got a crush on this boy. Again, they've never met. It's like an online sort of thing. And he's hoping to meet him. And he accidentally left a browser open at school. And this other kid sat down and his Gmail was there. And the kid read the email, realized what's going on. 
And what this kid wants in terms of the blackmail, I mean, he's not a bully in that way. This kid has a crush on a girl that Simon is good friends with and has been friends with for a long time. And he just wants an introduction. Like, can't you bring me in and introduce me to her and, and say good stuff? And he's just clearly not the kind of guy that this girl's going to like. And he says, if you don't, I'm going to out you and this other boy. And the reason that Simon doesn't want to be outed, again, because things are layered. Nobody ever does anything for one reason. It's not just, I don't want the world to know I'm gay. It's, I'm not sure who this boy is. And I really want him to like me. And there's something in what he says that makes it seem like if he was outed, he might get rejected by his family. And I can't let that happen. Now think about that struggle. So what am I going to do? And of course he decides, okay, fine, I'll introduce you to the girl and it goes forward. But all of those layers, and that is right there in the very beginning, which is another thing that writers often don't know. Here's another big lie the writing world tells you. Hold things back for a reveal later. Hold them back. Don't let the reader know, because if you hold things back for a reveal, you're going to lure them in. And the irony is that what you tend to hold back is the very thing that would lure the reader in. If you hold things back for a reveal later, it's just going to make the reader see you. Because it's like the writer going, I know something you don't know. Maybe if you're lucky, I'll tell you, which is as annoying as my voice just was when I said that. You want to give it all away. You want us to know where we're going. In fact, you want that first paragraph, that first page to be what, back when we could go speaking, I think one of the last places I spoke, or it was a few years ago, I guess, was in, was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa at SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Illustrators and Writers Conference. And there was an amazing editor there. And I think this was Jill, Jill Santopolo who said this. And she said, when she was in college, her mentor said, your first paragraph, your first page is like the promise paragraph. You let your reader know where you're going. You let them know what it's going to be about right there. Give it away right there. First page, first paragraph. So we go, yeah, I can trust you. I'm going to go forward. Because the irony when you hold it back is that not only do you bland everything out, I and mean, you're talking about one dimensional things, everything's blanded out because you're so afraid it'll give it away. But you often make it so that the protagonist or point of view character can't think about the very thing they think about because it would give it away. So when we finally find it out, which we probably don't because we bail after a couple of pages, we go, wait a minute, I don't believe this at all because they would have been thinking about it on page one and they didn't. What books would you recommend that you've written for writers to dig into first if they're interested in learning more about your way of approaching storytelling? If you really want to write a novel, and that's what you're diving into, I would say the second book, Story Genius, is the one. Because when I finish, it's funny. Book coaches, I think everybody needs a coach. I think everybody needs, but someone who knows what they're doing. I had a book coach. And at one point, when I finished my first book, she said to me, okay, that's great, but it's theory. Now, there is a lot of, of prescriptive stuff. But she said, okay, so what, how do you tell people to use it? What's going to be completely prescriptive? And that is story genius, because it really goes to all of the stuff we've been talking about, but step by step, how to start and then write a novel or screenplay or whatever it is that, you, that you'd want to write that story or a memoir for that matter. Okay, I have one final question. And this has to do with what happens to people when they start to rethink their story, and it's going to undo the writing that they've done, much like the writers with whom you've worked. And so what can you say to those authors who are going to be stripping it back, really, maybe even close to starting over? Do you have any encouraging words for them, even though it sounds so impossible to do? One is the mark of a writer is being able to throw stuff away. The mark of a writer is to be able to go, okay, this didn't work. Let me try to find out what did. Let me go in and do it again. 
mark of a writer is perseverance. I mean, so many I've had successful writers who come and say, yeah, I love hearing something doesn't work because now I can get rid of it and concentrate on what does. That's fine. In fact, the writers that I work with, what I've, what I've learned is it's like that, that song from Music Man, the sadder but, writer, or the sadder but wiser writers for me, because everyone who comes to me usually knows all of that already. So they're going, I got a thick skin. It's fine. Tell me what doesn't work. Tell me what does. Tell me what. And then we can dive in and find the story. But I mean, all I can say is otherwise you're going to throw good time after bad. Because what happens is when writers write, again, big lie that the writing world tells you. And one of it comes from you know, the, the, the shitty first draft, right? We've all heard that. I mean, Anne Lamott, she's great. Bird by bird, great book. Love all those birds. She says, the first draft is the child's draft. She literally says, you can romp, you can write anything because nobody's going to see it anyway. Biggest lie out there because somebody is going to see it and that's you. And you're going to go back and reread it and go, okay, yeah, shitty first draft, I get it. But now I'm going to rewrite because, you know, there's no writing, there's only rewriting. But the problem is without story logic, you do need a page one rewrite. And what you're going to do is you're going to go back, and this is what writers do all the time, I'm going to find the connective tissue. I'm going to reverse engineer and find a way I can keep all of this. And then what didn't make sense on in 200 pages now makes even less sense in 400. And what happens is at the end of the day, you've thrown good time after bad and you go, oh my God, forget it. Whatever made me think I could be a writer, I'm going to take up, I don't know, interpretive dance or something instead, which don't do it. There's way too many interpretive dancers as there is. Because it has nothing to do with talent. It has to do with the writing world telling you the wrong thing. 100%. The writing world is wrong about everything that it says. It just is. It's not about writing. It's not about beautiful writing. It's not about being a wordsmith. It's about having something to say. If you haven't done this work first about your protagonist, and really, you know, we could go on and on about the other characters. It's like saying, I'm going to write a 320-page novel about the most important turning point event in someone's life, who I know nothing about. It's shoving mm. your character on the page with amnesia. You can't make it up as you go forward because they were that person when they walked onto the page. You have to do this work first. And here's the thing. It is not research. It is not pre-writing. It's not what you do before you do the real writing. This is real writing. This is the way to get into it. A lot of this does appear in the novel. It's not like, well, when am I finally going to get to page one? You're on page one the minute you start that origin scene. That is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us today, Lisa. You've been such a joy. Thank you so much. Oh, my utter pleasure. There's nothing I love more than talking story. All right. That was a great, amazing, rich interview that I'm going to have to listen to a few times. I'm so grateful that you were on this podcast with us today, Allison. Allison, you're usually behind the scenes producing the podcast, but today you were here asking a couple of questions. So so grateful you're here today. I had a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. All right. So since Dave is absent for this recording, Allison and I are going to share our words of the episode. And I will go first. And my word is pluviophile. And that is someone who enjoys rain and rainy days, the sight, sound and smell of rain. And so I, I am a pluviophile. I remember when I was young, I grew up in Seattle, or I lived there for about four years and from like kindergarten to fourth grade. And then we moved to New Mexico and I told my mom that I missed falling asleep to the rain. I missed the sound of it. I missed the smell of it. So I guess that would make me a hardcore pluviophile. And I think you kind of have to be a pluviophile if you live in the Seattle area because you get so much rain. So 
That is my word of the episode. Have you ever heard of it, Allison? I've never heard of that. But when I read it, I instantly thought of you. It matches your personality. <laughs> does it? Yeah, it does. Totally. <laughs> I'm a total moody number four. Any again? Yes. So yeah, for sure. All right. So what is your word of the episode, Allison? Okay. My word is mercurial. The definition is subject to sudden or unpredictable changes of mood or mind. And I'm currently watching Peaky Blinders. And one of the main characters is he has such a mercurial temperament. He is one of those characters. We, you just never know what he will do or how he will react. He, if he is upset, he might kill someone and like ruin all their plans. And so that's why I was thinking of that word. That's a great word, mercurial. And whenever I use it, my science forward family, my husband and my son, don't like to use it metaphorically. And that's the only way I know how to use it. <laughs> so anyway, I look forward to you using it in a sentence in some point. Allison, I'll be I'll be waiting for you to use it. I'll try. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, that is another episode of the Journey 66 Writing Podcast. We're so glad that each of you joined us now. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Allison Parks. I hope you all find some time to buckle up and write. Mm -hmm.